Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty broadcast and podcast. Uh, Depending on which one you're catching, I would invite you to call in and join the conversation. If it's the podcast, sorry, but uh, a phone call will only result in frustration. Unless I happen to be sitting next to the phone, which is a possibility, but we won't be able to talk on the air. You get the picture. 801-331-8113. That's for those listening to the live broadcast. We have a lot to cover today. And I'm going to start with something a little Christmassy. Now, this is a bit of a departure from traditional Christmas stories, but it's from the, uh, the wonderful pen of Jeffrey Tucker from the American Institute for Economic Research. And it's titled Mary and Joseph's Battle Against the State. Now, some people would say, Brian, please, come on. You're trying to inject politics into Christmas. Oh, I think that took place a long time ago. Uh, back about the time a certain king by the name of Herod as I recall, started uh, thinking, hey, maybe somebody wants to take my power. And decreed that, uh, what is it, every child under two years of age should be put to death just in case. Okay, so in other words, don't don't throw it on me. It uh, became politicized. By the way, it was uh, the, the reason that Jesus was crucified. Wasn't because he was, you know, going around teaching the kingdom of God. That's not the official reason he was crucified. He was crucified because he was an enemy of the state. At least that's the case that the Sanhedrin tried to make to the Roman authorities. Hey, this guy's trying to usurp your authority. Why? We can't have that. Hang him on a cross. Now, this may seem like kind of a harsh way to start, but I want you to hear what Jeff Tucker has to say and and just realize behind behind the deeper meaning and the beauty of the Christmas story, There is a lesson for those who are paying attention. Here's how Jeff Tucker explains it. He says, the story of Christmas begins with a 90-mile trek in a dangerous world of robbers, both private and public. It was the first imposition of a head tax in that generation by the tyrannical Caesar Augustus, who ruled the Roman Empire from 27 B.C. until A.D. 14. And he says, you know, he had major ego issues. He changed the name of the month Sextilia to name it after himself, August. The calendar still pays homage to him. His major ambition in his reign was to restore a centralized empire. Raising revenue was a major priority of the regime, and this tax was a means of accomplishing that goal. Now, keep in mind, few people give voluntarily to any state. The state must rely on enforcement via coercion, including beatings and imprisonment. A state needs a standard by which to judge compliance, which means that taxation always and everywhere begins with accounting for all the people, their income and jobs. And it was precisely this with the edict of Caesar Augustus. Eugene W. Serafin, writing for the Catholic Biblical Quarterly back in January of 1945, explains as follows. In the days of the Republic, no one had ever tried to settle how much money was needed to carry on the government, and how much of this sum each province ought to justly pay in the form of taxes. Augustus proceeded to put together huge census lists and property assessments by which to determine the population and the total value of the property in each province. Suetus, a Greek lexicographer of the 10th century, wrote that Augustus, having become the sole master chose 20 men distinguished for integrity and probity 
and sent them throughout all the earth subject to him to make a census of persons and goods in order to apportion justly the contributions which should be paid into the public treasury. This was the first census. But that which had preceded the edict of Caesar Augustus was a sort of spoilation of the rich, as though the state regarded the possession of property as a public crime. Well, that sounds a little familiar. Jeff Tucker says the entire process was incredibly invasive and reminds us that state surveillance is nothing new. The emperor wanted the name, age, profession, and an accounting of the personal wealth of every person over the age of 14. All this was recorded in official records. Getting revenue always and everywhere begins with accounting for all the people, their income and jobs. For every Roman, compliance meant registering in the town in which he or she lived. Now, for Jews, it was different. They had to return to their home of heritage, which in the case of Joseph was Bethlehem, the land of the Jews. Thus began the journey with his bride-to-be, Mary, who was already very much with child. Now, to be clear, this was not a trip they undertook willingly. It was forced on them by the state. Augustus was effectively drafting people into his taxing regime. And Jeff Tucker says here, too, we see an early implementation of identity politics. Joseph and Mary were not just counted and taxed. They were counted and taxed as Jews. The state in these pre-liberal days considered it public business to assign everyone a tribe, a collective identity, whether or not he or she felt an attachment to that tribe. No one could escape. They were forced to return to a homeland that the state defined for them. Joseph had to leave his business behind. Mary, who should have been resting in bed, risked her life and that of a child to travel on dangerous roads for days to comply with the edict. And as the couple arrived in Bethlehem, we are told they were unable to find a place to stay, which today we render as some kind of discrimination. Jeffrey Tucker says this is ridiculous. There were no commercial hotels in Bethlehem. There were only places to stay based on the kindness of strangers in exchange for small gifts. The whole place was overcrowded because everyone was rushing to avoid the penalties of law. It was typical in those days, scholars, scholars tell us, that the living quarters of places were above where the animals stayed, so the animals could be a source of heat for the house. Mary and Joseph were generously given a place on the lower floor. Now, the actions of the innkeeper here were generous and benevolent in a way in which the state that was bludgeoning these travelers was not. The state dragged an expecting woman and her plus one, based on their Jewishness, across dangerous terrain for three days solely so they could be counted and taxed. Meanwhile, the private sector provided them with shelter, safety, and love. I like how he says this, and he says, what a paradigm of truth here. The story of Mary and Joseph on their journey sets up the essential conflict of our own time. Compulsion versus choice. The former being the brutal, something we must all deal with and work around in service to the state. And the latter being the compassionate and loving, enabling new life and light to be born into the world. Now, as the story continues, he says, recall that they were not safe there in Bethlehem either. Faced with a murderous order from King Herod, they had to leave again, this time for Egypt. And here Jeffrey Tucker says, think about this story as you contemplate the surveillance, the identity politics, the impending internal passports and demographic controls of modern statism. 
These are tools of oppression. And think, too, of the beautiful opportunities afforded to us today by the benevolent hands of commerce and private charity. And I mean, he's speaking in an economic sense when he says these are truly the saviors of the world. How's that for an interesting slant on uh, the Christmas story? You have some thoughts on this? I'd love to hear from you. 801-331-8113. We're coming up on a break, but when we come back, I would like to, uh, I want to share with you some thoughts on when it's appropriate to ignore the state. And by that, I mean when we can, without apology, say, no, I'm not going to do that. And you might scoff and think, well, now, Brian, come on, it's clear. There's, there's t- there are times and places where people know that they are not bound to do so. I beg to differ only from the standpoint that I think a majority of people are trained from a very early age, probably kindergarten on, to believe that, well, if, you know, if there's words on paper, if a politician or a bureaucrat put words on paper, you and I are morally as well as legally bound to follow those words. I'm trying to make a distinction here. Moral and legal are not the same thing. Something that is legal can be extremely immoral. How do I know this? Well, slavery was totally legal, as was the Fugitive Slave Act, which was the practice of returning escaped slaves back to their owners. Segregation was legal. After all, it was Jim Crow laws that forced people to be apart, to be separated, whether they wanted to or not. You want to see some of the really extreme examples? It was official policy that made the Holocaust a possibility. People following legal orders round up the Jews and take them to the camps. Stalin had his policies, the Holodomor in in Ukraine that starved millions of people to death. And we haven't even touched on Chairman Mao and his great leap forward and the tens of millions who died under his policies. All legal, every single one of them. So we'll put it on the back burner for a couple of minutes while we pay a couple of bills. When we continue, though, we're going to talk about how we should know our right to ignore the state without apology. This is Loving Liberty. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I hope you are having a blessed day, regardless of what you're doing. Even if you're laying somewhere in a ditch being stung by bees, I hope it's a blessed kind of day and that you are somehow making the best of it. I don't know where that image came from. Believe it or not, I actually wrote that to one of my daughters. She went on a, uh, a handcart trek, which is kind of a thing here in Utah where, where uh, my kids have grown up. And uh, anyway... Parents were asked, would you write a letter to your kids telling them how much you love them? And for some reason, I guess I was feeling froggy. I wrote to my daughter and told her, I hope that this letter finds you well and not stuck in a muddy ditch somewhere being stung by bees. I guess that was the worst thing I could think of in terms of, you know, being in the outdoors. You ready to go down the rabbit hole with me a little bit? 
I promise. I'll, I'll leave a clearly marked way out. I've sprinkled breadcrumbs so we can find our way back. But I want to spend some time talking about when it is right to ignore the state. When it's time for, for you as a moral person, a peaceful, productive individual, to put your foot down and say, no, I will not go along with that. And I know there are those who will, will take what I'm about to share with you as, you know, well, this is a call for anarchy. This is a call for chaos and, you know, every man for himself, the law of the jungle. That's how we've been trained to think. It's either or, either everything that the state says you have to do, you do it and you work for change within the system or you're out there throwing bombs. You know? <laughs> I don't know. It seems like it seems like somewhere there's got to be some room for nuance but I'll tell you what had me thinking about this. A memory popped up on Facebook from a couple of years ago. And a couple of years ago, I was spending the majority of my time in Las Vegas attending the federal trial of uh, Clive and Bundy and others involved in the 2014 standoff with authorities in Bunkerville, Nevada. And I don't think I've ever felt so out of my element as the first couple of days in that courtroom. I don't know law. I'm not a lawyer. I'm, I'm, I'm not that bright of a guy. You know that if you've listened for any length of time. And I sat there just thinking, what, what am I supposed to do? Why, what purpose is being served by my being here in this courtroom? And the thought kind of popped into my head, well, you could be a good witness. And I thought, you know what? I can. And I resolved that's what I'm going to do then. I'll be the best witness I can. So I tried to observe what was going on around me, not just the details of what was happening with the trial, but any of the other lessons that I could glean from being there and participating in what was taking place. One of the things that I noticed, my friend Joe Carey pointed this out as we were walking into the courthouse one day. He was like, what do you think of this courthouse? And I could see his point. You want to talk about a towering palatial monument to our national government, the federal courthouse there in Vegas. And I presume this is probably true most places is uh, just amazing. It's, it's a magnificent edifice that happens to, to be both opulent as well as imposing. Now, once you enter those doors, one of the first things you learn is that strict reverence for the power of the state is enforced both inside and even outside the building with ever-present surveillance, armed enforcers everywhere as a visible and not-so-subtle reminder of who is in charge there. And one of the questions that popped into my mind was, this is the perfect setting to ask the question, was man made for the government or government made for man? That's the essential principle that underlies the legitimacy of government at every level. And how we answer that question reveals whether we see ourselves as citizens or whether we view ourselves as subjects. So if we, the people are the legitimate source of political power, as the preamble of our country's constitution states, then we are the masters of those on whom we confer that temporary authority. If we are their masters, then whatever authority we delegate to our servants must be given voluntarily and can be withdrawn from them as necessary. If this weren't the case, those who attain a little bit of government power might be tempted beyond their ability to resist to use that authority in ways that serve their own interests while they're actually harming the citizenry. Shocking, right? 
<laughs> Who could have seen that coming? Of course, such abuses are far more difficult to excuse when they're happening to us rather than when they're being inflicted on somebody we don't personally know. So what are we to do when those acting in the name of the state start to act in ways that either injure us or deny us the inalienable rights that proper government is supposed to be safeguarding? I guess another way to ask it is, are we morally bound to play along with their immorality when we're being abused? Now, I'm certainly not the first person to ask this question. Thinkers for many, many generations have asked it. One of the best was Herbert Spencer, who in his book, Social Statistics, explains or social statics, rather, explains why the state can't be regarded as the paragon of righteousness. He says not only does magisterial power exist because of evil, but it exists by evil. Violence is employed to maintain it, and all violence involves criminality. Soldiers, policemen, jailers, swords, batons, and fetters are instruments for inflicting pain, and all infliction of pain is, in the abstract, wrong. The state employs evil weapons to subjugate evil, and is alike contaminated by the objects with which it deals and the means by which it works. End quote. Now, again, I expect there are probably a few people experiencing a little cognitive dissonance here. Oh, no, Brian, who's going to protect us from people who would harm or take advantage? That's a good question. And it's a legitimate question. And I think in part you have to consider that one of the most violent places on the earth is not the prison or the jail but the courthouse in which the decisions are made, which deprive people of life, liberty, and property. And every one of those deprivations is backed by official force. Now, we have due process, and we have safeguards that are built into the system, and when they are followed, mostly we'll get a satisfactory result. But notice I, I put the qualifier in there, when they are followed. Because sometimes, and I believe this is the case in our time, justice begins to serve primarily the interests of the state. And that was one of the things I saw with incredible clarity there in Las Vegas while watching the Bundy trial unfold. Look, what this means is state power needs to be structured and wielded in such a way as to limit its ability to act in immoral ways. When you have authoritarian legislators or judges or bureaucrats, when they become too used to getting their own way without regard to the morality of their actions, they can transform from guardians into self-serving brigands. Anytime that occurs, we have an absolute right to withdraw our consent and to ignore the state. Now, let me be just perfectly Straightforward. What I'm saying is I, I believe Cliven Bundy was justified in not paying those grazing fees that were being imposed on him because of this. Now, of course, uh, standing up for your rights goes over like a lead balloon when you uh, are dealing with a hubristic political class and the bureaucracies that sometimes behave as if they are our gods. Political superstition and power worship have led a shocking number of people to, be, to behave as if the state is their master. 
And that's the question I want you to ponder here. Is the state really your master? Because in reality, I think it's an institution that serves a temporary purpose. And state power, when it's not being usurped, is merely borrowed from the people. This is why legitimate government power has to be constantly checked and balanced in how it's exercised. That's how you prevent it from becoming an institutional wrong. Now, I have to throw my disclaimer out here. You do not have to agree with me. In fact, we can have a great conversation if you don't. 801-331-8113. We'll pick this story up or pick up this uh, topic on the other side of this news update and these commercial messages. We'll be back right after this. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. Sharing some thoughts on when it is proper, nay, righteous, to ignore the state. And I realize for a lot of people that is heresy. That's like, Brian, you are you are advocating lawlessness, but I'm really not. What I'm pointing out is that the state itself can become lawless, and when it is engaged in lawless activity, when it behaves in a lawless manner, that's when our laws come to mean nothing. If you've ever read the timeless essay, The Law by Frederick Bastiat, He points out that when state power is turned from a means of securing justice into an instrument of plunder, we blur the difference between justice and injustice. I think we're there today. Bastiat says the safest way to make laws respected is to make them respectable. When law and morality contradict each other, the citizen has the cruel alternative of either losing his moral sense or losing his respect for the law. These two evils are of equal consequence, he says, and it would be difficult for a person to choose between them. Something else you might notice is that perverted laws tend to create conflict rather than resolve it. And a person who stands against such policies in defense of his or her inalienable rights isn't acting as an aggressor. But it's almost a 100% certainty that uh, those in authority will do everything in their power to portray them as such. This is one of the reasons why men in uniform were persuaded to treat Lavoy Finicum like some kind of a dangerous terrorist. When he was no such thing. This is why they were quick to set in motion events in which there was zero margin for error. And where the justification for the use of deadly force was there on hair trigger. And then once they did it, they congratulated themselves. Well, we did our job. We did what we had to do. We protected. No, you didn't. All you guys did was follow orders and fail to think for yourselves. And Lavoy Finnicum's death is a perfect reminder that the state will kill those men whom it finds difficult or impossible to control. I think Lou Rockwell said it best. He said, if the state loses its grip over your mind, it loses the key to its very survival. 
It needs us to be enthralled to it and and afraid, in awe. Just keep in mind, when those, those who would use their authority to deny us our inalienable rights, guaranteed under the First and Second Amendments, they will never give us permission to disobey them. So those of you who are standing there with your hat in your hand thinking, but if we ask them real nice, maybe they'll, you know, maybe they'll at least make the uh, evisceration of our liberties a little less painful. Nope. It's not going to happen. And that's because it's up to us individually to know our rights well enough that we actively claim, utilize them and defend them without apology. One of the possible ways that we do that is to exercise our natural right to choose to ignore the state. I want to shift over to another article that I found. This was uh, Chris Rossini published on the Ron Paul Liberty Report. Some really great food for thought here. Chris Rossini says, whenever you see big government or worse, a big government that sets out to be an empire, he says, you know, The people have messed up big time. The wrong road has been taken. Big government politicians and everyone that believes them have to inhale and exhale a constant stream of lies. That's the only way that big governments can sustain themselves. And that's why you've heard Ron Paul repeat over and over that truth is treason in an empire of lies. So today, since the U.S. federal government has become the biggest government to ever exist in mankind's history... It follows perfectly that finding a kernel of truth uttered anywhere is almost impossible. Just as kryptonite would sap Superman of his powers, the truth saps big government of its powers. What that means is the truth has to be relentlessly suppressed and avoided. Now, thousands of years of recorded history shows us that the wrong road always ends. And sound economic theory explains why the wrong road always ends. And it's also true that rarely, if ever, does big government reverse its own course. Politicians don't decrease their own powers. Rather, they keep making up new powers. They keep conjuring up new rights from their imaginations. They never decrease their budgets or debts, but keep piling them on as well. They never stop looking for enemies, but keep seeking new boogeymen to conquer. There's a reason why since ancient times, people have warned about the lust for power. It's the worst addiction of them all. As the mountains of power, debts, laws, regulations, and enemies pile up, the lies to sustain them have to get more and more outrageous. The lies don't even have to make sense. They just have to be told and repeated over and over. Fortunately for the perpetuation of human life, nature has built in a built-in rehabilitation process for this addiction. It's called economic law. And it cannot be broken. Every single big government and empire that has ever existed has been dismantled by economic law. What the people will not do for themselves, economic law does for them. Now, for those that live through the dismantling, it's always considered a surprise and referred to as a crisis. But it's not a surprise to everyone. And he points out, after all, hasn't Ron Paul been warning us for decades the U.S. government is headed for economic catastrophe? So it's not really a surprise, and it's not really a crisis either. When you drink way too much, is the hangover a crisis? No. It's biological law bringing you back to reality and health. The hangover is the cure. 
When you pollute your body beyond its limits, is the subsequent fever a crisis? No. The fever kills the bacteria and viruses. The fever is the cure. So that which is known as economic crisis is actually the economic cure. Yes, it is painful in the same way that a hangover is painful. But the problem is not the hangover itself. The problem is the prior reckless actions that preceded it. With the economy, the problem is the irrational beliefs that government can micromanage everything and everyone, not only in America, but in the world, can rack up debts that cannot be paid, can make welfare promises that cannot be paid, and bail out everyone to boot. In an empire of lies, this is what people believe. That's the problem. History has taught us that when economic law does its thing to big government, the people finally have an opportunity to see the truth. The illusions are shattered, and the free individual has a much better chance to discover himself. Now, this doesn't mean that everybody or everyone discovers liberty and that all humanity lives happily ever after. Not at all. It just means that the ideas of liberty are much easier to discover and are much more attractive now that big government has lost its credibility. Liberty, freedom, and free will have always been the natural and built-in condition of every human being. Government, while it tries its best, cannot change that, but it can cover it up with lies. However, always hidden beneath those lies, there remains the timeless truth that we're all individual sovereigns. And let me, let me put a little skin on that word sovereign, just so we're clear. That is the repository of authority or legitimacy. Now, look, as a believer in God, I believe God is the ultimate sovereign of the universe. But in terms of who is best suited to make the decisions of how you should live your life, it's you. It's not some little clique of, of people who are in office thinking that, well, you elected me to be your leader, your ruler. It's you. You're not a sheep. And as this article points out, when big government loses its credibility, individuals have a much better chance and incentive to ask themselves, what is it about me that put me in this situation? Or what can I do to change my circumstances? Or what have I thought and believed that turned out to be false? It sounds pretty simple, right? <laughs> kind of makes you wonder, why don't more people do this? Because it's painful. I don't like to be wrong. Nobody does. And it's extremely painful when you find out something that you've believed, probably since about kindergarten, turned out to be a pack of lies, or at least not the entire truth. The article here points out self-contemplation can be painful. We tend to avoid admitting that we were wrong. It's a, it's a lot easier to blame others. That's why politics is such an attraction to people. It's an outlet to blame others instead of yourself. But when big government has to contract, blaming others won't do any good anymore. The politician is broke and busted. He can't act as your bully anymore. Now, there's some really solid suggestions in this article as well. I'll wait till the other side of this commercial break to share those with you. This is Loving Liberty.
Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde at your service here, 801-331-8113. I'm, I'm leaning on some pretty heavy topics, and it's only going to get heavier as we go. But I think this is really timely information. I'm sharing with you an article from the Ron Paul Liberty Report, When the Illusions Are Shattered. And I don't know where you are. We're all somewhere on this spectrum of, of learning the truth about uh, what we were taught, what, we've, what we believed about uh, the benevolence of government and how the state is here to solve our problems. Every so often, it's, it's helpful to be reminded the creed of statism is, hey, anything that's not under the direct control of the state is by definition out of control. And the crazy thing is you'll find this at the local level. You'll find it at the state level, the federal level. It's everywhere. But there comes a point where even all the king's horses and all the king's men can't uphold the illusion that this is right and that you need to be subservient to it all. This isn't to say that there can't be legitimate government. There certainly can. In fact, I'll go so far as to say in its proper limited role, it's a huge blessing. Limited government acting within its proper sphere makes it possible for you and I to enjoy the fruits of our labors, to enjoy life, liberty, and pursuing happiness however we deem, you know, most likely to achieve it. Pretty tough, though, to make the case that uh, that's, that's where we are today. And the cool thing is the ideas of liberty can be embraced right now, especially if you start with the approach of, hey, what is it about me that needs to change? You don't have to wait for someone in authority to give you permission because they never, ever will. Let's go to the phone. 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Hey, Brian. Sam calling. Sam, um, good to hear from you. Yeah. Um, one of the things that kind of stri- strikes me weird is when uh, when uh, people you know, come up with this. Well, who would uh, protect society from all the uh, weird people out there if we didn't have government? Well, my answer is, okay, uh, let's talk about some of these towns and cities and not to reflect badly on all police officers, but how about these stories where we've had people that have um, called the police because uh, maybe a loved one or, or neighbor or something is, uh, you know, maybe doing some behavior, so they all under the guise of uh, protecting everybody else or themselves, you know, or their, or their loved one from the police or from their you know, from their uh, behavior that they're doing. But then the police come in and kill the very person that they were supposed to protect. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I understand what you're trying to say, and I'm not trying to pile on either, but I, I tell my kids, be very careful about inviting the state into your life. Yeah, because, I mean, the, the, the problem you have is that, you know, it, it, the whole thing is, is stupid from the get-go because basically... What you're saying is you want to be protected by, from violent thugs when in reality the state has some of the worst violent thugs there are. I mean, let's just look at the IRS as a prime example. And, um, you know, and I know even myself, having uh, served in city government for a while, although we, um, I think we eventually quit using them, but under the, uh, under the international property and international building codes, the city inspector could if he wanted to kick you out of your house, he didn't have to have a reason. It, it, all it really had to be was he didn't like you. And he could come and kick, have you kicked out at gunpoint. I'm thinking, 
that's real protection. Huh? That's standing up for my rights. You know, everybody says the state's supposed to protect our rights. They ain't doing a very good job of it. Oh, yeah. Uh, and they'll save you from monsters that they created. Well, yeah. it's all in the name of safety, Sam. You understand we have to do this because, you know, someone somewhere might do something unsafe. Yeah. Well, see, I'm beginning to wonder because it's, this is all I've ever seen. And when you're used to all the stuff you've ever seen out of government, I'm beginning to wonder if the limited government argument is actually a myth because how do you keep it limited? I mean, they always figure, they always justify reasons to become bigger. Well, I have a number of friends who have, have made the transition from, look, I'm a hardcore conservative or a, a small government person to they're like, I'm a reluctant anarchist. Joseph Sobrand, yeah. who was one of my favorite authors, um, and I think a very thoughtful individual, uh, came to that conclusion that, man, I don't know. I don't know if you can keep government limited. I believe that it's possible, but the requirement, as I understand it, is you have to be a self-governing, in fact, I'm going to use the term righteous, individual for that to happen. Yeah, and see, through the schools, that's been bred out of everybody, and uh now, anybody that tries to be responsible for their own lives, you know, everybody gripes and complains about all the all the um, people out there who, for whatever reason, don't want to work and all this kind of stuff. And I get aggravated with them, too. You know, they, a lot of these young people, they'll go and apply for jobs and then show up and then all of a sudden not show up and all this kind of stuff. But I'm thinking one of the biggest obstacles as to why it's really not inviting for some people to want to work is when you see, when you see how much money is taken out of your check, I mean, every time a government taxes everybody of vast amounts of their wealth, eventually there's no incentive. you got to have incentive out there. No, I, I completely agree. It's, yeah. like, it's like a friend pointed out to me a long time ago. He says, you ever notice how all the buildings in, in truly socialist countries are ugly? They're all but ugly. And, and he says the yeah. reason for that is because nobody really owns anything, so there's no incentive for someone to do something different, beautiful, artistic yeah yeah no i mean it's i i could see that i mean you know and it's getting that bad here i mean if i if i supposedly own my house for example then why do i need a permit to fix something you know and of course the, the alibi is is that well we're trying to prevent somebody from doing something that might injure somebody later well used to we were a more responsible society and uh even though um technology hadn't gotten to the point where it is now as far as our electrical codes and all that kind of stuff and the and the stuff and of course you know we could argue about that whole thing too i could tell you i could tell you <laughs> horror stories about building codes but oh i believe it but but the point i'm making out of all this is that uh if if this country were to try to be built you know if people tried to build this country today the way that the roads were forged and everything back when the country was started, it would become illegal. In fact, I mean, it would be illegal. In fact, I remember somebody saying one time with as many regulations in Detroit, Michigan, where Motown, you know, the big Motown record label was, that there's no way Motown could have ever started up under today's regu uh, regulatory environment versus what they had back when a lot of these, uh, a lot of these uh, neat record labels and stuff started. I believe it. So... You know, it would literally it would be illegal to build this country under today's codes and regulations. Nope, I, I think you're you're absolutely right, Sam. Thanks so yep. much for the call. You bet. That's all I got. All right, we'll, we'll uh, we're coming up fast on the break here. I want to finish up this article again from the Ron Paul Liberty Report. This is from Chris Rossini. 
And the question is, you know, look, what can you do? What can you do? Well, right now, you and I could be teaching our children that no one, including government, has the right to use violent and aggressive force against anybody else. That can happen right now. Force is for defense only. It's for the suppression of an aggressor. And the proper role of government is to punish aggressors, not to be an aggressor itself. The limits to individual liberty, he says, are so simple that a child can understand them. Your liberty extends to the person and property of other individuals. Their life and their property are their own personal kingdoms, just as your life and your property are your personal kingdom. Interacting with other individuals is done on a voluntary and consensual basis by contract, not by fiat. And he says that now I know that you may be thinking to yourself, people will never live like this. That may or may not be true. Who knows? The bottom line is you're not people. You're you. And you can live like this. We can all individually reach and climb and aspire. We can keep the ideas of liberty in the forefront and daily chip away at our own errors and our own illusions. The empire of lies offers only illusions and delusions. And all illusions end up shattered. And all big governments end up like sunken ships. Individual liberty, he says, is the ultimate life preserver. What a marvelous essay. Yes, it will be included in the show notes, which will be posted up in the podcast just a little bit after this, uh, this segment is over. Look, we make it easy for you to share this with your friends. Share it on social media. If you're listening, there's a pretty good chance that this is a message that resonates with you. Make sure other people hear it as well. Tell them about the Loving Liberty Network. All right, we've got another hour broadcast ahead of us. Stick around. I will make it worth your while. I guarantee it. We'll be back after news. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.